This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Alan Farmer with you on Afternoons today. Three guests, three big topics, starting off with how to disconnect from work. That phone that's probably very close to you right now. And all sorts of different social factors as well. Plus, the pressure we put on ourselves is really stopping so many of us from having clear boundaries between work and home. We were bringing in the expert, Dr. Ranger, clinical psychologist from SAGE, to tell us how to do it and taking your questions too. Money man Joe Woodhouse on hand as he talked about expat wealth. How many expats leave the UAE financially worse off? Then when they arrived, you might be shocked and he's on the mission to make you financially free. Plus in Pets and Vets, it was Dr. Sergio De Silva on hand to answer all of your questions about your furry friends. Have a little think about your life and how connected you are. Constant connectivity is absolutely the norm. Maybe you've got a smartwatch on, you've probably got your phone within arm's reach tablets and then you chuck in the phenomenon of remote working where your sofa isn't just somewhere to relax maybe it's somewhere to work as well we're talking about the desk detox disconnecting after work to reclaim your time your mind your well-being this is authored by dr gavin ranger clinical psychologist and adult specialist at sage clinics and we're stolen away from her busy clinic to help us Dr. Gavin, how are you? Hi, good, thank you. I'm feeling personally victimised by this topic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're talking about how not being able to disconnect can affect our quality of life, maybe our relationships Mm -hmm. as well, even how productive we are, which seems a bit counterproductive. So we're also going to be talking about how to do a desk detox. So if you've got any questions, get in touch. You don't need to put your name on. So why do we struggle to switch off after our work hours? I guess from my clinical practice, there are just so many reasons, but this is definitely something that has got worse since the pandemic and the, you know, the increase in home working. Mm. And like, we're so accessible. You can get in touch with us, like on our watch, our phone, our tablet. It's just always there. And I think the more we started working from home, that disconnect or that, um, I guess, the boundaries between the two just get blurred. Mm -hmm. And I know that this is something that I was guilty of as well, right? When you can see your laptop there, you're like, oh, I'll just do a little bit. I'm only sitting here on the sofa. And then you do the whole like, oh, you know, it's it's better for my peace of mind if I clear the emails and it's not hanging over me for tomorrow. Interesting about the pandemic being part of it, because I think job insecurity and instability that mm-hmm. may well play a role. People going, oh, crikey, you know, we don't know what's around the corner. I need to be yeah. showing up or, you know, appearing to be on, on, on. What about the role of tech? I mean, I remember showing my age mm-hmm. um, back in the day when people started to get Blackberries mm-hmm. as part of their job. And it was so shown as being like, oh, I got a free Blackberry. Like, you know what that means, right? You know that yeah. that means they're going to be able to message you wherever, whenever. And I think that has just got worse and worse. What about that role of smartphones and always being accessible? Absolutely. I think that's probably one of the biggest factors, right? And like even so you open your phone, you might be trying to reply to something personal. If you can see your notifications and your email there on your homepage, how hard is it to ignore it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, is it almost impossible? And if you try to ignore it, often what people will say, myself included sometimes, is, oh, I'll just keep thinking about it then until I've done it. And, you know, you've always, we've always got our phones on us, right? Always, all the time. Do we, always, do we think we fear judgment from colleagues who might also be accessible and, yeah. you know, emailing? Is, is, is it this idea of not being good enough? Absolutely. And, you know, that kind of implicit messages that we pick up, right? If you're seeing your manager or your colleague responding to emails at like nine o'clock at night, naturally the expectation or the assumption is going to be that I should be doing that or they're going to think I'm not working hard enough. Chloe's shaking her head in the booth. And (laughs) when Chloe joined the show, I was like, I just want to be super clear with you. I, you know, read the papers in the morning. I'm probably scrolling too late at night. If I send you anything, because, you know, the nature of what we do, I'm like... It could be a great guest. It could be a great topic. Do not feel obliged to reply. And that, just, like, just don't. Because for, for my mind, as you're saying, I like to kind of clear away stuff and be like, oh, I'll do that now so it's done. Yeah. 
but it's when people have expectations on others to be responding, creating mm. at all hours. Maybe it's the leaders we need to look at. Absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's an organisational thing, an occupational thing, as well as an individual thing. I think we need to kind of work at all levels, really, mm-hmm. um, in order to kind of tackle this and always being on the expectations. Oh, we're going to be unpacking this further. I'm curious... You know, are there certain genders or age groups, demographics, industries even that find it particularly hard to switch off? If this is something that you are really coming up against, joining us in studio, Dr. Kavina Ranger, clinical psychologist at Sage Clinics is with us. We are going to be breaking it down a little bit more and ultimately asking, what does this do to us? This hour, we're looking at why we struggle to disconnect from work, the consequences of this, and most importantly, how to do what Dr. Gavine Ranger, clinical psychologist, calls a desk detox. She's joining us from Sage Clinics this hour to take my questions, but most importantly, yours on the text line. So, Doctor, I wondered who particularly struggles with the inability to compartmentalise, to disconnect from their job? Have you identified any? I don't know, genders or demographics or, you know, age groups, nationalities, even industries. So I would say, to be honest, in terms of the genders and who I've seen in my clinical practice, there tends to be quite an equal split between the genders. The contributing factors to that, like things like burnout or stress might be slightly different mm-hmm. um, depending on what you do and how many multiple roles we're juggling. But I'd say pretty equal in terms of the genders. But I do notice that the the people that kind of come and see me tend to be kind of in their 40s um, and kind of from corporate backgrounds, so thinking a little bit. And in terms of industries, I would say across across the board. <laughs> what about personality types? Yeah, so I would say there's two, I th- I'd say there's two main things that are common themes in the, the people that come to see me. So there's one where kind of very high cultural p- family expectations from very young. So they're used to being very, very high achievers from a very young age and being encouraged to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that obviously just carries on as you get older, as you go into the working world, particularly if you go into the corporate world. And there's only so much we can humanly yeah. pos- possibly manage, we're, right? We're not all Beyonce. We've only got 24 <laughs> hours in the day. I know, right? <laughs> but if you are you know, a people pleaser, you know, that conscientious piece yes. of always wanting to be... No, I don't want to say showing off. That's not what I mean. But, you know, being seen to be doing your best... At all times, that's exhausting. It is exhausting. And that's the other type, right, with the really hard to say no to people. We might experience a lot of guilt if we say no. Or And again, those can come from lots of places, family expectations, cultural expectations, work expectations. You know, all of those things kind of make a difference to why we keep going and keep pushing ourselves. So what does this do to us? You know, if those boundaries between work and home life Mm. are increasingly blurred or just non-existence what can the consequences be so we see kind of a range so if we think physically often people will say they feel physically exhausted it doesn't matter how much sleep you get um, you feel physically run down exhausted things like headaches gastro issues things like that are common then from a more kind of like cognitive level, we might like lots of people will say they just can't switch off. Like they're constantly thinking and their thoughts That's are racing. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, <perfect. laughs> yeah. Racing, ruminating, right? Like thoughts on a loop, that kind of thing. But I think the biggest indicator and the thing that usually is people's point of like, okay, I have to do something about this is the kind of more the things we do. Um, so we start to kind of withdraw from the things we usually like with the, you know, and initially it's kind of, we justify, I haven't got time for that, but eventually we like the world starts to get a bit smaller, right? So we're, mm-hmm. we're doing less and less of those things. We're spending more time working or if we're doing those things, we're not really present. We might be present in body, but in mind we're somewhere else. Is this ringing any alarm bells with you? Let us know on 4001 if you're struggling to switch off. A message going, is it harder to switch off if you work from home? No name on that one. And you can be anonymous if you like. Absolutely. Um, Because if it's there, your home space is no longer your protected space. Normally there's that kind of physical distance when you leave the office and you go home. Whereas if your living room is also your office... Like I was saying before, you can see it, you, you know, you, it's your attention is drawn to it. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't pick up that laptop, you're probably thinking about it, right? 
Oh la la. Okay, I've had some messages on this as well for you, uh, Dr. Gavin. This was came through on social saying, I'm a teacher and I cannot switch off. I'm lucky that I love my job, but if I worked out my hourly rate, I would quit. So I think, what about that loving your job? Mm. You know, that in some ways that would be a blessing because you're enjoying what you're doing. But yeah. then, as you say, it becomes all consuming. This is it, right? And it's usually that passion that, that draws us to do the overworking or the things like that. But again, this is the irony of it, isn't it? That actually we'll give more in the hopes that or with the aim of getting greater job satisfaction. But as we were kind of saying before, you briefly touched upon is that it does impact our producti- productivity because there's only so much we can do as humans, right? When we're trying to balance everything. And also, when is it enough? Like, does yeah. that make sense if you're racing towards a goal or a promotion or, you know, an entrepreneurship, you know, goal, for example, mm. when do you say, OK, I've made it now. This is enough for me or this is enough for my boss. Um, do get in touch if you've got any questions on this, guys. Um, we're going to be talking about how to do a desk detox after half past um, and no name on this one saying not me, but my husband. He doesn't have work to do as such in evenings, but is constantly checking his phone for emails, often responds. It's made mealtimes and watching TV really annoying. Surely it can wait until the next morning. It's not like he's a doctor. And it just, how much of it is habit of picking up your phone and looking for notifications, refreshing your emails? A lot of it is that autopilot. We're just so used to doing it. And it's a really learned behavioral pattern that it is automatic. But then also I think that we do often fall into the trap of thinking, no, no, I can't miss anything. Like, I have to. And like it's only when you really do step back and you're thinking, okay, what is the worst that's going to happen if I didn't look or, you know, um, have I missed anything in the last 10 years? Mm-hmm. The answer is usually no. But again, it's a thinking trap, isn't it? It's a, it's a thought trap that we're like, okay, uh, what, but what if? What if I'm, I miss that and I'm, you know, my day tomorrow is just going to fall apart or... You know, there's lots of these things that draw us in, but usually it's that autopilot. We don't even realise we're doing it half the time. We've had messages about, I can feel myself becoming addicted to work. We've had another message about, I love my husband dearly and really attracted to his work ethic, but really missing him um, because of how much he works, um, which we are going to come to, as I said, when we, when we deal with that idea of a, a desk detox and compartmentalising. Plus, a question here for you, which we'll come to after the headlines. How do you set new boundaries with a company you've been working with for a long time? Great question. Mm-hmm. They've got their expectations. You want to make a change because this is not working out for your mental health. That is coming up very, very soon indeed. talk about how to have a desk detox disconnecting after work to reclaim your time your mind your well-being dr gavin ranger is with us today clinical psychologist and adult specialist at sage clinics We've had a number of messages that we mm-hmm. need your help on doctor so let's we've it's kind of established what this can do to us you know increasing stress levels always thinking about you know what's next even compromising which sounds counterproductive of productivity and this endless juggle. How is this different to being a a workaholic? I guess that disconnect can be about lots of things as well as work, right? So I'm thinking a little bit about the function of why we don't switch off. So if it's because we're really passionate about our job and, you know, we just love what we're doing and it doesn't necessarily make us feel stressed, then, you know, there's probably not a bad thing in being a workaholic if you don't, if it's not affecting your stress, your well-being. But I guess that disconnect, it's the kind of the way our mind works and gets fixed on something. Could be any kind of stress, work being one of them. Can working, overworking, purposely disconnect, not disconnecting, be a sign that you're maybe not happy in your home life and actually work is a bit of a safe space sometimes? Yeah, that's, that's also something that we commonly see, particularly in people who come to see me, is that actually work becomes the coping mechanism for something else. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Let's go to the text line. Um, a message here, and I, I'm, I'm not expecting you to have a, a yes or no on this, but I would just get your take. T says, can two workaholics be in a happy and functional relationship? <laughs> Saying, fascinated to have met a couple recently who literally both work seven days a week, take their laptop on the holiday, drop everything for work. One's a lawyer, other one has a couple of side hustles that takes, um, take up significant amounts of time. They both seem to prioritise work over anything, which I suppose is better than only one of them doing it and the other one feeling neglected. Is this just about different expectations of marriage? I personally don't see this being any different to being single without the outward show of having a spouse. 
maybe they've met their kindred spirits. This is the thing, right? If if both parties are like that, then it it tends to be a little bit more harmonious because there isn't one that feels like they're missing out on something Mm -hmm. um, or being neglected in any way. But equally, I guess we don't always know what it really feels like for that person, right? Or both of those people. But equally, if they're, it's, it's more about how do you feel when you're doing those things? If yeah. they both feel really content, you know, behind closed doors, um, as opposed to what you see, if they feel content, then actually, yeah, they could probably do work quite well together. There you go. <laughs> right. Let's talk about how we can do, as you call, a desk detox. What's number one on your list, Doctor? So I guess number one is probably to get aware right? What is it that we're doing? What is it that we're getting pulled into? Like, is it that I have no work-life balance? Like all I'm doing is working when I get home in the evening or the weekends? Or is it that I do on paper or have that work-life balance, but actually when I'm doing those other things, I'm actually still thinking about work. So it's just for you to understand first, what is it? Because then your goals will come from there. Mm -hmm. You know, do I have a problem with saying no? You know, when I, if, What has happened if I've said no in the past? Is there a kind of an anxiety or guilt tied to that? Because also what we find in the vicious cycle is that the more we say yes, people know we say yes, more people will come, right? Yes. So the first thing is to just figure out where is it? Like, what is it that I need to kind of shift, right? So is it like I think I'm having a work-life balance because I do do X, Y, Z on the weekend, but actually how many times have I checked my emails in that time? Mm -hmm. Because that's just reactivating our threat state every time we look. So having some clear goals, and those can be different for everybody. You know, for me, it's probably reducing screen time. Mm -hmm. For others, it might be, you know... I'm not going to answer emails between the hours of, you know, six and six, mm. for example. We had a message earlier, which I thought was a really interesting one, saying, how do you set new boundaries with a company you've been working with for a long time? Oh. That's a really good question Isn't and it? can be really hard as well. But I would probably say, like, negotiation in a way. Um, change will take time. Right. Because as much as it's autopilot for us to do these things, it will also be a very established way of working probably for the organization. Yeah, you can't just be like, hi, yeah. this is so, how we do it now. So I listen to Helen and Dr. Gavine yeah. <laughs> and I've got some new boundaries and yeah. I'm just wondering how you felt about that. In fact, I don't really care how you feel about it because this is who I am moving forward and your boss is going to be yeah. like, that's sweet that you think that that's... <laughs> going to go down (laughs) yeah that's right and also you know job security that we were talking about before it can be really hard to make these changes or even put yourself out there to suggest these changes but we were saying before there's so much data to back up the fact that these slightly different ways of working the more flexible ways of working the protecting your downtime actually makes us more productive Mm -hmm. so there's an incentive for that change i think and often leading with that can be a helpful in um, and then negotiate, right? So, you know, if it is the, the expectation or is genuinely essential, I don't know many jobs, but genuinely essential that you have to check your emails out of work, for example, is the negotiation that I only check every few hours, for example, right? So it's kind of slow and steady. Um, but also, you know, thinking about the works that, you know, people can do, like, you know, we do a lot of training at an organizational level as well, which, you know, highlights some of this stuff, you know. Can I ask, um, sometimes it's an expectation from a boss or a colleague that you need to be on, on, on. Sometimes it's our own expectations on Mm -hmm. ourselves. And I wondered if there are any tools or any tech, any apps or any techniques that you recommend for maybe making this a bit easier on ourselves. Yeah, so there's definitely some practical things we can do, right? So I often recommend, like if you think about when you look at your smartphone, where's your email app, for, for example, right? Usually, I'd say for most people, it's the first thing, it's on the front page. So often even something as small or simple as moving that app into another folder on your phone and turning off the notifications, you then will have to make so much more of a conscious effort and there's so many more steps to do that. So, you know, that autopilot where we're talking about where we just pick up our phone and we're like, it starts to break that down a little Mm. bit. And actually what most people will come back and say is that after maybe a few days, they stop thinking about it. The first few days, though, there still was that urge and that urgency. But after a few days... That out of sight, out of mind kind of thing really started to help. Um, what about, um, tra- I, mean, I don't know if anyone else is like me, but when you get your, your screen time notification on your mm-hmm. phone, you're like, last week, your phone, I'm like, <laughs> oh my goodness me. Um, but, you know, whether it's do not disturb mode or mm-hmm. blocking off time, things like that. Yeah. 
Exactly. So block out time in your work diary so people know when you're not com- like contactable, but also let people know you're doing that because that then helps with some of that guilt. Mm-hmm. And it is a bit of a case of riding the wave of that guilt initially, but it starts to become the new norm. Um, and also having tech-free time. So, you know, when you're having dinner, for example, um, where's your phone? Where's your laptop? All of these kind of things. Having tech-free zones in your house or when you're doing an activity, purposely doing it without tech can be a really helpful way to start to make that shift towards disconnecting. To the text line we go, we've just got a couple of minutes left. A message from B saying, "Um, thank you for this. I can feel myself becoming addicted to work. I'm meant to have tomorrow off. I can feel myself making excuses Mm -hmm. to my team why I need to log on. I know it's not good for them as they need to see their manager taking time Mm. off. So then I start thinking about how I can do work in secret. Is Mm. this proper addiction thinking? I'm ambitious. My family rely on me. Um, My husband does does say I spend too much time on my laptop, but he also wants to give up work and become a house husband. So shrug emoji. (laughs) Does that sound like what to be saying is addiction thinking? It can be, yeah. It is that it's that constant, I guess, threat state is what I would call it, right? And the more we're in our threat state, it's that anticipation, what's coming next? What am I going to have to deal with? Oh, if I just do this, it will feel so much better. Mm-hmm. And we, what we know is when we're in that threat state, our thinking is a lot less flexible anyway. Um, so, you know, and actually she made a really good point there about modelling for other people as well. You know, if you're replying, then you're modelling an expectation. So mm-hmm. actually making that shift could probably be quite worthwhile. I actually did a post on Instagram about this yesterday and it was more related to working parents and how we need to normalise being parents in the Mm. workplace. You know, I had my daughter's um, sports day yesterday and it would have been very easy to say, you know, I've got a dentist appointment, I'm going to be a bit late. But Mm -hmm. I was like, no, I want to go to my daughter's sports day. But I feel like a lot of this needs to come from leaders to say, you know, I need need this time. This is family time. Mm. This is for me. I'm not contactable. Otherwise, we are going to be a much more burnt out nation. Um, Doctor, thank you so much for your time on this. Um, Gavina, if anyone wants to read any further on this or indeed has only recommended reading, any resources? Um, Yeah, so there's lots of kind of uh, resources accessible. I think uh, when we're talking about switching off, becoming more present, I think anything to do with mindfulness is a really good starting point. And there's lots of self-help available on that. Um, But also, you know, see if you can make these kind of practical shifts, um, self-help reading on those kind of areas. And then not on your phone, (laughs) not on your phone. phone. Absolutely not. An old fashioned book. (laughs) Thank you so much. Really appreciate your insights there. And you can find Dr. Kavine Ranger, clinical psychologist at Sage Clinics. We are talking expat wealth or hopefully achieving expat wealth now with Joe Woodhouse, a.k.a. Joe underscore Family Wealth 101. He's a dad of three. He's an award-winning financial planner. Lived in the UA for a decade, now back in the UK, but continues to work with expats here. And he says he's on a mission to help families become financially free. How are you, Joe? I'm very well, thank you. What does financially free mean to you and I guess to the wider community? To me, being financially free means living life on your terms. So being able to do the things you want to do, you want to do when you want to do them. And in order to do that, you need a part, you need something that generates you an income that then replaces your day job. So you are no longer trading your time for money, which Mm -hmm. is what you do essentially when you're going to work and you're getting paid to do so. I guess other people's definitions might be might be different. We all have this idea of, I don't know if you read Ramit Sethi, but this idea of like what it means to live a rich life. Like my idea of being financially successful could be very different to everybody's listening today. Um, but there are some common trends and indeed mistakes that you've identified expats making. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about some of the ones that you're like, this just keeps up time and time again. The biggest one for me is just overspending. So... There's, there's a huge disconnect, so disconnect because 60% of expats actually leave the UAE in a worse financial position than when they came here. 60%? Yeah, 60%. Which is mad given that, you know, as an amazing place it is to live, many people come to the UAE to seek a better salary. Obviously, quality of life is great, but a lot of people, the main aim is to go back with savings. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's exactly what people say. Everyone you ask, why did you move to Dubai? It's always a financial reason. Tax-free, better salary, better job, better opportunities, create a better life for my family or whatever that may be. Yet then you've got a large majority of them leaving here with less than nothing. So their behaviour is not consistent with their goals. 
So overspending, what are the big areas that you're seeing that on? Because some, some costs are unavoidable. You know, we know what rents are like right now. I think a lot of people paying for schools for the first time, perhaps ever. That's one of our massive outgoings. What about overspending that perhaps is avoidable? It's this brunch culture out here, yeah. isn't it? It's keep, <laughs> keep, it? Keeping up with the Joneses. So, look, Dubai is very, very easy. It's very easy to spend money here, as we all know. And it's really just, for me, it's a case of getting a proper system in place to make sure that that lifestyle doesn't completely run away with you. Because mm. you, you've been here 17 years? 17 years. Right, okay. You know yourself. You blink and a year's gone. Oh, you yeah. blink and two years have gone. And then you blink and three years have gone and you still feel like you're spending Monopoly money because it's not what you used to grow up spending. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, I had this conversation with someone last week like on about the price of a pint of beer. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they wouldn't blink at 40 durham a pint, but six pound a pint. Yeah, convert it. Yeah. You never leave the house. Yeah, well, it's nine pound a pint, isn't it? So Don't 40 durham to nine pound a pint. Paying that back in the nag's head in your local town, like, you, people wouldn't have it in the UK. So overspending a big one, what else is coming up with clients in terms of expat goals not being reached financially? So another scary stat that you find here is that I think it's 72%, 72 or 73% of expats don't have adequate life insurance in place. Why? Two reasons. One, some, some people just don't have it. And second is... Some quite a few people have got an old policy that they've had years ago that they had back in their home country. And this is not just aimed at the UK, many different countries around the world, that those insurance policies that you took out when you was a resident in country X may not cover you here. And many actually don't. And a lot of people aren't aware of that. It's also a really boring thing to spend money on, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but, it's but, why, this... but, what, what, but, yeah but why should we? Well, this is the thing. So... In the grand scheme of things, if you start investing today or you start investing in a month's time over the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years of your life, is it going to affect it all that much? Probably not. However, if you don't take out, if you don't have proper life insurance in place today and you have children and you die tomorrow, that's too late. Like, there's no coming back from that. Joe Woodhouse with us today. You lived in the UAE for a decade, now back in the UK, but doing an awful lot of work and work with people here. Mm-hmm. Would you mind telling us the biggest mistake you made financially when you were in the UAE? <laughs> Got a couple. Okay. Um, I, I fell into this trap. I fell into this expat, uh, the expat trap, as I call it, of just spending too much money. And it, it, I moved out to... I lived in Ab- When I lived in Abu Dhabi, I moved out there when I was 22. And doing really well with work, everything was going great. I was spending money left, right and centre, not really thinking about it. Although I was advising people what to do with their money, I mm-hmm. weren't taking my own advice. Um, and my bank account was still increasing, everything was fine. But then my wife and I, well now wife and I, we got married and we found out we couldn't have children. So we went through IVF, which is a very expensive game out here in the Middle East. I'm guessing a lot of you listeners will know. Mm-hmm. And it took five, we had five failed attempts before we were blessed with our twin boys. Gosh. And you can't put a number on that, but we can put a. You, you I, no, no, I, I can put a number yeah. on it because I remember how much the number uh, was. But what was it? About 150, 200,000? 90,000 pounds. Yikes. So, and they're here, and that's amazing. They are, yeah. And we're, and we're very blessed and very lucky to have them. But. During that process, we ran out of money. Um, and at the time, I changed companies and the new company wasn't what I expected and the market was down and, and everything's so expensive. And it was just after the Brexit vote when the pound lost all its value and I was paid in sterling and I was sending money here. So my cost of living went up and I was, like, I was in this blame culture, playing the victim. And it was only when I sat back and looked at the huge house I was in, looked at the two flash cars on the drive, looked at all these five-star holidays that we'd been going on and going on the brunches every weekend, that that was for me when I really took stock. And mm-hmm. I was like, hang on, it's not all these external factors. You, you've just spent way too much money. And I sat there and big eye-opener for me, I sat there and I worked out what I'd earned as an expat and what I'd got left as an expat. And therefore, this is how much you have spent in the last few years. And that, for me, was a big eye-opener. Did you do a little bit of sick in your mouth? Oh, yeah, big oh, yeah, time. Oh, yeah, quite a bit. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's on a mission to help other people do better, 
maybe even more, earn more, but certainly save more, invest more. We're talking expat wealth this hour with Joe Woodhouse. You can find him on Instagram at Joe underscore Family Wealth 101. Um, we're going to talk next about the content that he creates that resonates, some of the hate he gets, and of course, going to the text line too. Joe Woodhouse in the studio. He's a dad of three financial planners. He's been in the UAE for decades and then he's back in the UK now, but works with an awful lot of expats. And we're talking about building, preserving expat wealth and avoiding some of the common pitfalls. Um, your content, I think, is super relatable. Um, and I think that's why it resonates so, so well. You know, you're very open about, you know, your own finances, about some of the struggles that people have had. And I wondered, in terms of the content you create for Instagram, Joe, what's, what are some of the videos that have really resonated? Um, I, I think people seem to like my direct and sort of simple approach. I mean, I've always been a strong believer of if you can't explain something to an eight-year-old, you don't really understand it yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. And my industry is, and it, it don't win me any friends when I say this, but my industry is built on jargon and nonsense and, and noise. And sometimes it feels like a bit of a power play that I know what this term means and you don't have any power and I'm basically bamboozling you. That is exactly it. To think that you can't do this by yourself. And that is exactly it. And I started creating this content. Really, It was when my boys were born. So when my twin boys were born, they, they spent a couple of weeks in um, in Nikko and I said to her, look, I'm not, like, just switch me off while the boys are in hospital. I'm not doing anything. Which was great. We could spend as much time at the hospital as possible, but in the evenings we, we would, doing nothing mm-hmm. and it was actually came on one evening i've only said i had too much wine and i started googling things because i knew then was the time to increase my life insurance i knew then was the time to start saving for their university for their education well, this is the thing you have a you have kids and you know responsibility suddenly yeah. looms pretty large doesn't it yeah, yeah but i thought right what would a new parent look for online that's not spent the last 10 years in financial services mm. So I started Googling things and everything I found either gave me a little bit of information and then put your contact details in to find out more, which I've been in this game long enough to know that means I'm going to get cold called tomorrow. Yeah. Or it'd take me to the 30-page document full of jargon and noise. So I put a bit of a rant out on Facebook with my phone, basically just saying the industry's built this way, it's built on smoke and mirrors, like why can't things just be straightforward? And it seemed to split the camp. So people from within the financial service industry gave me a lot of flack for it. But a lot of my friends and people that followed me that weren't related to finance, it really resonated with them. Mm -hmm. And I thought, there's something here. There's a gap. Yeah. And that's when I started talking about just basically how to simplify finances and how if you follow a few simple steps, you can get where you need to be before you need to employ someone like myself. Well, this is the thing with the best will in the world. Not that many people need specialised advice. Like our, our situations are not often that complicated. So that when you think about hate that you've had, whether it's through comments, is it from within the industry or are there any, any topics that people might find a bit emotionally triggering if you're calling people out on behaviours? Um overspending that seems to upset a few people every now and again but yeah especially when i started creating the content i was getting a lot of flack and a lot of hate from people within my industry who does he think he is like he's embarrassing himself he's embarrassing the industry and not a lot of it kate was directly at me but it was all third party and he'd get back to me and it was just nasty yeah playground bullying really yeah um but luckily i got like good guys in my corner that I used to go to and vent to and they basically said look just ignore them you're onto something yeah yeah and I stuck with it and yeah here we are we are going to pick your brains between now and four o'clock so if anyone's got any questions and as we said it's not about bamboozling it's about there's no such thing as a silly question if you're looking for clarity on a term or you've got a specific situation you could do with a bit of a an expert ear on 4001 Uh, Dina says hi both emergency fund query I'm wondering how married couples are securing their emergency funds via banks in the past years my husband and I have saved in personal savings account under my name but then the pandemic happened we basically used up our funds and we're back to saving now now, but is it safe to have a savings account in both names? What if something happens? Okay, so my wife and I, we have a joint savings account emergency pot in both in both names. And for me, what an emergency pot is, an emergency pot is just six months expenses sat in a separate bank account that should the there many boilers out here, so that's a bad example, but should the kitchen roof leak? Yeah. Or, or should AC, something happen? Yeah, the AC, should the AC go? <laughs> yeah, or basically an expense comes up that you can dip into that instead of having to bounce off credit cards or cash investments in, which either one's going to take 10 steps back. 
With regards to sole account, joint account, I would say, look, it depends on how you manage your finances. If you both run things very individually, just keep your own emergency part. However, if you have everything going to the household and you share the household bills, I would say have a joint mm-hmm. savings account. Um, if anything happens to one of you, I would always advise having a will any- will anyway. We're going to be talking about wills on the show very soon, so we can touch on that. But it's interesting when thinking about where that emergency fund should be. I mean, there are some actually pretty, pretty decent higher interest savings accounts around the UAE right now. Mm-hmm. I just moved some money around last week and I was like, oh, she's quite pleasantly surprised. But I'm happy to say me and my husband keep our finances pretty separate. We've got a joint holiday pot that we both put money in, but we've both got our own kind of emergency funds and, yeah. and savings as well. It's super personal, Dina. I think it's like it's, it's if you're going to be worried about it, then if it's, you know, don't do it. If it's worked for you in the past, then go for it. Um, we've got Joe Woodhouse in the studio. We've had questions about getting rid of debt quick. Ah, oh, the dream. I love this question from Basim uh, saying, any insights on pocket money for kids? Mine are five and seven. They're good kids. I'd like to start some conversations about finances. What does our money man say about that button we'll be finding out talking money matters now with joe woodhouse i've had a number of messages asking um where is your guest from on instagram you can find him on instagram at joe underscore family wealth 101 if you want to send me the word joe i will send you that link um he's an award-winning financial planner lived in the uae for about a decade but is back in the uk now and is helping expats become in his eyes the goal of being financially free. Now, phone lines are open, as are the text lines. Um, David, how can we help you this afternoon, sir? I was just wondering what Joe had to say about um, you know, things have changed here a little bit in terms of the company taxes and so forth. But for a, a family, in registering our properties and so forth in a family trust or a, a company trust or something like that, uh, what, what's, what's Joe's thoughts on that? And that would be for assets you've got here in the UAE? Assets in the UAE, yeah. Okay, all right, Joe. So this is an interesting one because this is something my husband's talking about doing as well, David. He's like, you know, if we start buying a few properties, does it make more sense? Are we more protected to have it as a business rather than it being a personal asset as, as such? Any take there, Joe, or anyone we, anywhere we can point, to, point David? I think really you would need to speak to a, uh, a company that specialises in legal advice yeah. regarding wills and trusts here in the uae it's not something i would usually get involved with to be honest it's not something i advise on a day-to-day basis david we've actually got a specialist on wills coming on next week she's literally written a book about it and we've got a lawyer so monday afternoon four o'clock i'll put this to her because i think this is a really interesting one in terms of as you're saying kind of future estate planning but also you know kind of the more immediate questions so thank you for raising it and if it's all right we'll get get back back to monday cheers david um we've had a message here we're just talking about emergency funds saying we had a six-month emergency fund before we had children that became a one-year fund after having two children i love how responsible our listeners are great shout yeah gold star to you um can i put this question to you from basim now you're a dad of three Mm -hmm. i've got two um any insights on pocket money for kids? Mine are five and seven. They're great kids, and I'd like to start some conversations about finances. Okay, so this is something I try and bang the drum off quite a bit because there is a huge lack of financial education within the education system as a whole. So I think a lot of this we need to teach our own kids. Um, so the things that we do is we try and have open conversations about money, like when we go for dinner with the children, I give them... Granted, most of the time it's my card because I don't have that sort of cash on me these days because there is no cash really. But um, they make the financial transactions. Like when little things like when we go to the the shops, they get a pound in the UK. What we're doing in the supermarket at the minute is kind of comparing and contrasting products, saying, "Oh, this one's got two hundred and fifty mL in it, and it costs this much. This has got you know three thirty. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Which one do you think is better value? My kids are a little bit older yeah. than yours. Yeah, see, my boys are five. I've got yeah. t- five year old twin boys. So, like I said, we'll go to the corner shop for them to buy sweets or a chocolate bar, and I'll give them a pound. And again, it's a, it's a big game for them now we're checking the, the shelf edge labels and oh, no that's one pound fifty i've not got enough for that mm-hmm. so things like that and i we have started not giving regular pocket money but we pay them for doing chores around the house just little things like putting pots away cleaning the dishes helping mom or dad tidy up um, and we incentivize them that so they recognize that money is traded for doing work sometimes. yeah um 
five and seven, I think, is a really good age for them. Actually, we um, we do give pocket money. I was just showing uh, Joe off air um, after I saw your message. We use an app called Leap. Um, which is great. Um, they get a card. I think it's affiliated with Mashrec Bank, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Um, so they can go in and make purchases using their card. And then that on, we've both got an app with so a parent account, like a parent wallet, so I can see how much money they've put into their savings, how much money they've got kind of available to them. And if they make a transaction, I can see how much money they've spent in Claire's accessories, buying all sorts of sequined tat. Um, but they can also put kind of savings goals in place, which I think is a really, really nice one. Um, question here, um, which is more to do with clearing debt. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are like, 2024, I'm going to take control of my finances. I'm going to start investing because I feel like people are starting to realise that actually that's not just for really wealthy people. You know, you can invest a small amount of your salary every month. No name saying, I'm looking for a clean start. So housekeeping before investing. I've got some credit card debt, small personal loan. Please share advice on the best way to clear debt quickly. This falls into two camps. So there's one camp that says you should pay off your highest interest debt bearing first. And there's another camp that said you should pay off a method called the snowball method. I'm a fan of this. So what the snowball method is, is essentially you line all your debts up in size order. So from small, smallest amount yep. to biggest So interest rates, not, not really that interest. Forget about interest rates for now. Okay. So smallest outstanding amount all the way down to the largest outstanding amount. You make the minimum payment on all of your debts. And let's say the combined minimum payment on your debts is 500 dirham, but you can afford 1,000 dirham a month to pay towards your debt. You pay that additional 500 dirham to debt number one, which is the smallest outstanding. Get it gone. Get it gone. Once that's gone, you then move the 500 dirham plus the payment you're paying on debt number one onto debt number two, and you work your way through them like that. For me, and, and yes, look, if we were robots... The best way to clear your debt would be to clear the largest interest debt first. But we're not. We're humans and we make silly mistakes. Mm -hmm. And for me, those small financial wins you're getting along the way of, I had five debts, I've now got four. I had four debts, I've now got three. Yeah, you boost your confidence. Yeah, and it keeps people going. Makes sense. All right. Hope that helps. No name and all the very best. Um, we've had a message here, and I know we're not talking marriage counselling today, but I feel like, you <laughs> know... the wrong person m- for that. Money, stop it. <laughs> but, you know, money, money and... <laughs> Money and marriage, my goodness, it can tear people apart. One of the biggest reasons for divorce. And there's no name on this message saying my husband's got a big debt to people over 200,000, whereas I've always been a big saver. It's been creating real tension between us as we can't align financially. He's on restricted income. I'm earning more, so I'm paying more. How can we amend this situation? That's a really big question. I think that's probably more of a sit-down conversation. But if we could speak broadly about you know, couples having conversations about money from the outset, what advice would you would you either give your younger self or to anyone that's about to get into into a relationship? I think you've hit the nail on the head with it. That's about having a conversation, not initially clearing that debt off because you can pay someone else's debt off seven days a week, but if you're not assess, addressing the underlying problem, it's only going to happen again. Mm-hmm. So, and one of the main causes of divorce, of separation between couples is financial matters. It's financial stress, and a lot of that comes when you have different financial goals. One may be a saver, one may be a spender. One may um, want to invest, one may just want to live for today. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's about... I suppose there's no right answer, but it's about having that open conversation. It is, and, and being aligned from the beginning. Yeah. I, I always feel like, you know, we, people talk about getting marriage counselling before they get divorced, but I, some a lot of marriage counsellors I say speak to say, have the big conversations before mm-hmm. the ring is on the finger, before even, I'm not saying on the first debt, you know, date, what's your, what's your <laughs> attitude towards investing? But certainly when things start to get serious, because the choice you make and who you marry has got such an impact on yeah your wealth and your happiness. Mm-hmm. It really, really does. I'm sorry that we can't help in this situation, um, I, but I, I'm sending you all the very, very best. Joe, um, to the text line, um, what about saving for children's futures? Okay. What do you tend to advise? What are you doing with yours? Because they are money sponges. Yep. Um, and whether it is looking at you know education pots mm-hmm. or indeed money for them when they get to a certain age. What, we've had a message ask saying, I'm 32, I've got two daughters, third on the way, um, torn about what to do with the children. I invest um, my, 10% of my salary for myself. Should I be having a separate portfolio for each child? Okay, so first thing I would do is work out how much they need. So this is the really important. I talk about this a lot. Before you look at investing, I would try and work out what your why is. Why are you investing and put a goal to it? So if you know your daughters are, sorry, how old were the little ones? Five, seven and one on the way. 
Right, okay, so five, seven, and one on the way. So you know in 11 years that your eldest will be at university. You know in 13 years <laughs> your eldest, will, your second will be at university. So you know what the goal is. So then it's a case of working out how much that's going to cost you today, then factoring inflation in between now and then. Mm-hmm. That's your number. You, this is how much you need when your child is 18. And then funnel that back to today to work out what you need to do in to get there. Then you'll know whether or not that 10% not enough, whether it's enough or whether it's too much mm-hmm. that you're putting away. And similar for retirement, presumably, as well. Exactly that reverse the same. engineering. Exactly the same, yeah. Maybe my kids just won't go to university. <laughs> Maybe they'll just start working <laughs> as soon as possible. My other tip as well with that, put it in, especially here if you're in the UAE where there's no real tax, um, tax you don't need to worry about tax, put it in your name, not the children's. Okay. Good and good until we've only got a minute left. So I just wondered if you could wave a magic wand over the people of the UAE so they can have a happier, financially healthier, not just 2024, but I guess future. What should we all be doing more of or less of this year? Pay yourself first. So what I mean by that is have your savings and your investments, leave your account the day after payday and then you spend what's left. Automate. Yes. Take away those friction points. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Be nice, isn't it? <laughs> to be like in a year's time to be having this conversation again and have people going, I'm so glad I took some of that advice. In the meantime, though, your Instagram is a great resource for advice and more of this no nonsense chat. Thank you. Um, if you want to send me the word Joe, I will send you that. You're in the UA for just a few more days, but you are doing consultations on Zoom when you're back in the UK. Yeah, as well, yeah right? and I'm back here on a regular basis as well. Brilliant. Absolute pleasure to catch up in real life with Joe Woodhouse, aka Joe underscore Family Wealth 101. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high quality salmon, lamb, turkey, and chicken. Joining us live in studio is Dr. Sergio De Silva from Intervet Clinic. How long have you been a vet for now, Doctor? Uh, almost 30 years. Almost 30 years, really? Yeah. Oh, you should take the surprise in my voice as a genuine compliment because you, you do not look old enough. Um, and over the years, what's been your best part, your fondest memories of, the, of your job so far? Uh, receive puppies. Really? When do we get puppies? When puppies uh, come in? Yeah, when they come in, it's the, the best part of... That's, but isn't that why every kid wants to be a vet? So you just get to yeah. play with dogs all day. Yeah. Um, what's, what's coming to so. clinic now? What's keeping you busy? Uh, I have a couple of uh, different pets that come to us. Go on. Turtles. Uh, Turtles? Yes. Yeah, turtle And rabbits is coming for a couple of days. I have some rabbits, but some known, uh, I cannot say, some, oh, some so different pets. Some exotics. Yes, some oh. different pets. Oh, okay. Love it. The euphemisms of <laughs> Dubai. Some different pets. A headline caught my eye, Doctor, and I want to get your take on this because, interestingly, my husband came back from walking the dog yesterday. He's like, I think I've worked out who the mystery pooper is, right? <laughs> so outside our house, there is um, some large deposits, let's just say, and he's worked out the culprit. Now, Italy, taking it a step further, in Bolzano, yep. dog owners need to submit their pets for DNA tests. Authorities cracking down on dog poo in the streets. Swabs are then inserted into a <laughs> database. The police then refer to it. And there's fines of up to a thousand euros. So they're asking for about forty-five thousand dogs in the province to undergo this at a veterinary clinic. They're also saying, to be fair, it also helps identify dogs killed in road accidents, or they might have attacked other animals or people. Um, and apparently, people are inspired by the initiative. It's a big undertaking, I would say. Which I think, I hope, everyone listening today, just pick up the poop, please. Yeah, if you have a dog at this, do your job. Yeah. It, do you know what? Yeah, That's the honestly. motto. If you have a if you if you have, have a, a dog, dog, do do your job with their jobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's te- not very nice to have some. Oh, it's awful. St- step your foot. No, yeah. it's just and also it gives other dog owners a really bad name. And to be honest, that's why people maybe are reluctant to have you know more dog parks or beaches. It's the the poop problem. So. Carry your bags, people. Poople. Um, right, doctor. Poople. To, to, <laughs> to the text line we go. Right, can we talk treats? Cat treats in particular. Mm-hmm. Danny's been in touch and we've got a two-year-old cat. She's the apple of our eyes. Loves her treats and insists on getting one every day. Is this a good idea? What's a recommended quantity? She's a mixed Arabian Mao 
weighs 4.5 kilos. Danny, I want to know, how does she insist on getting one every day? What are some of the manipulation techniques that you are falling prey to? Um, Cats and treats, what's your insights? Uh, The same for us, the same for dogs and and other animals. Uh, Have a look if it's overweight. Overweight in cats, it's uh, it's a constant that I receive in, in the clinic almost every day. So for cats. Uh, for cats, dogs as well, but cats it's more often. Uh, and why treats are so interesting for cats because they are full of grease and basically fat. So fat is tasty, so text, so the animals like to to get, especially for salmon. So we have the the really? excuse that we have to give like omega three or six or whatever. So, yeah. but there's still calories, right? It's not only calories only. It's about the quality of calories, especially for treats. We talk about fat, and fat it can, you know, can damage your your your, your cat. So quite so, fast. we don't know what this cat's called, but Danny's cat is is having one every day. That doesn't sound excessive to me. It depends on the size. Like one one apple is fine, but one, you know. Danny, you know I want a photo of both your cat and the treat and tell me how does she manipulate you? Our dogs, and it's really hard when you're training dogs in particular because you're trying, especially if they're motivated by food, you know, you, you're trying to get them to do or be, you know, do things or behave in a certain way and you're incentivizing them with treats. Those calories add up, certainly. Yeah, but all, all this quality is exactly, for, is exactly the same that we talk about for our food. So in general, Dogs and cats has to eat between two and a half to three percent and dry food daily. I'm talking about dry, not considering any any wet mm-hmm. in in this situation. So we have to put in the account that that calorie. So for example, let's talk about calorie. One kg of chocolate is much more intense than one kg of watermelon, for example. So it depends on what. What treat are you giving to him? Okay. And the quality is important in this case. With dogs, you can give them, you know, when I say we give our dogs treats, we might give them like the end of a cucumber that's been chopped off it's or fine. an ice cube or whatever. Are cats interested in kind of human food as treats or not really? No, I don't think so. Because ah. cats are the proper carnivore. So they, when they kill the prey, they go for the intestine to get uh, the, all the minerals and special the vitamins that they, they have. Lovely. Take it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys, but this is true. <laughs> okay. I'm just trying to just trying to cut costs because a, a treat, you know, a purchase treat every day, it definitely adds up. Danny, I hope that helps. But yeah, definitely factor in the calories. Um, and I want to know, what's this cat doing to, to get you to, to give up the goods? This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. Joined in the studio by Dr. Sergio De Silva from Intervet. Um, thank you so much, Danny, for getting in touch. We were just talking about treats for cats. He's <coughs> got in touch to say, my cat is called Zoe. And every evening, like clockwork, she'll be on the kitchen counter, making curious sounds, dilating her pupils and rubbing her head against me till I give in. Oh, yeah. Apple of your eye, indeed. You can reach out on 4001 on the app of the WhatsApp too, and you're more than welcome to give us a call. We've got, uh, got Dr. Sergio in studio, and we're talking about, as often comes back to, toileting. So my dog has gone through a bit of a change, a huge change in his life, just in terms of the people that he's around. And since then, this was last year, has been peeing inside the house every single day without fail in two spots next to a curtain and next to the sofa. And I do not know how to stop it. I've talked to behavioralists, to vets, to uh, trainers and nothing. What do I do? Saha there. So change of circumstances, you know, the, the family dynamics changed and it's the, basically manifesting in peeing in yep. her cavapoo, I understand. What comes to mind? She says, sounds like she's already done a lot of research and nothing so far. Yeah, uh, I can say I have similar cases with my dog. Really? So, yeah. So we changed the house and he started to pee in some, some place. Ba- basically, the dogs, they, they want to show their marks. So if someone is moving for you can talk with some behaviors as well. So if somebody else is a little stronger than was in the house, the animal try the animal try to challenge who is inside the house and they try to, to make some marks as well. So this is part of the behavior, one of the, the step of the behavior. This can happen at normal. How to try to train him back. So walk with him a little more, you know, try to keep uh, I have a cone in in my previous clinic in Brazil, I had a cone with some uh, pee pads, some pads. Yeah. So, and he has this spot to, I train him, put close to the place that he's supposed to pee before. So I offer him a clean place and he pees on this, on this, and helps a lot. Actually, now he doesn't have the problem anymore. 
So Isn't it funny? I find it really interesting to think about our pets having mental health problems. Well, we have. You know, in terms of there being, you know, stress or anxiety and... I saw an Instagram reel over the weekend, and it was it was like a kind of a fake um, assessment, like a like a like an interview with her dog. And she was like, you know, I got you to help with my anxiety, but now you have anxiety, and we're basically both a mess. Um, but you know, mental health problems in dogs, and this can be from trauma, presumably if they've had a, a, a you know tough start in life or something's happened. But you know, stress, anxiety, depression, even do you see? Let me tell something funny. I used to work with buffaloes. Okay. Okay. Just to let you know, guys. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> I worked expecting with, buffaloes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So buffaloes, they follow the leader. They follow the boss. So uh, the pack, we'll talk about the dogs as I'll come back to the dogs. They follow the, the leader. They follow the boss. So in something changing in, in, in your in your house, something changes. If in your, your behavior changes as well, reflect immediately in, in the animals. It's very common to have some people with a liver problem. They come to the clinic and the dog has a liver problem. They say, oh, this coincidence. I don't think so. I feel that we we basically, we are the same. We're in the same pack. Wow. Back to the buffaloes. What were you doing with those? <laughs> um, I used to help to breed in them in Italy and in Brazil. So it was a, a, a Mediterranean buffalo. To do mozzarella. I was about to say, was it cheese? <laughs> it's cheese buffalo. <laughs> Amazing. Dr. Sergio with us today. Um, Leonie, thank you for getting in touch. I'm on the text line there saying, I've got an eight-year-old terrier mix called Jake, and I must confess I've never brushed his teeth. Had a German shepherd growing up, and knowing other dogs with great teeth, not brushing never really occurred to me. Never fed... Um, any human food, dog food only. Um, I did give him dentist sticks, but then I found out that they weren't actually so good. Anyway, the vet's been mentioning his teeth when I brought him in. I was all set to book him in for teeth cleaning under general anaesthetic. And, thank you. Under general <laughs> anaesthetic. And then read how dangerous it can be for dogs. And it's really put me off. I don't know what to do. Would be grateful for your thoughts. Okay. Uh, you have to. Sorry to say like that. But the anaesthetic procedures nowadays are much safer than it was 10 to 20 years back. We use several different kinds of uh, anesthetic that the same that used for humans, meritomidine, ketamine, and uh, propofol, and isofuran, and whatever. This is the, the names of the... And this is extremely safe for, for dogs, especially if you have someone well-trained to do the, the, the job. I advise always to do biochemistry. That is important to do. Can 10, can 17. That's what it means to see if the kidneys and the liver works properly. Mm-hmm. But also, don't, uh, don't wait for the doctor... Uh, offer to you to do in any kind of the, especially for blood test. Be Take proactive. It. Yeah. Um, yeah. With teeth cleaning and under general, um, why is that needed? Is in terms of, can sometimes the plaque be so bad that you you can't brush it off? No, because this is there's a let's say I'm, I'm not explaining super, super hard, but basically you have a calcium on top of the plate. The same that you have what you call tartars in humans. So we have to remove the the, the technical name is tartarectomy. So we have to because there's no way to remove with some flexible uh, yeah brush and brush and no. Okay, so here's my next question. I've unfortunately seen so many photos recently about you know mistreated dogs and you know dogs with infections and things. But in in for you know the regular people listening today who've got dogs at home who don't get treated, what can happen if you don't get your dog's teeth cleaned properly? Uh, first of all, they lose their teeth. This so is the yeah. infe- infections in it. Yeah, because they have a gums infection. Let's say yeah. in cats, in, for example, we call stomatitis, but something gets bad. It's related sometimes with two viruses. It's not only the tartarectomy, so this could be related to corona, for example, and some herpes virus. It's in cats a little different, but dogs, it's quite simple. Mm-hmm. It's uh, just because the mechanical issue. The, and by the way, we have to clean inside the gums. Not outside, but once you see outside, it's it's yeah. statical stuff. But to get the gums health, you need to clean inside the gums. So we use the the uh, ultrasound uh, to remove the the the, the clean. We were just talking okay. earlier about expat finances and having an emergency fund. Getting our dog's <laughs> teeth cleaned comes out of our emergency fund. It is not, not a cheap endeavor, but you know, as you said, they're so important for their, their overall health. And this is, uh, it depends from, from dog to dog, like a cat to cat. Some animals, it's every six months. Some animals, it's once in life. I did yesterday one for, she was 11 years old and she never, and she didn't lost one. There you go. Exclusive. Leonie, I hope that's the case for you and Jake. 
This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. Joining us from Intervet Clinic, Dr Sergio De Silva on hand to answer any questions that you might have about your furry friends. Right, we've got a coughing kitten. Now, I have to say... This this is an incredibly detailed message because Carla is a nurse for humans. Okay, she says I've had cats before, but not with coughs. But I think you'll I think you'll really appreciate the insights from Carla saying I'm going to ring, ring the vet tomorrow. But in the meantime, advice is welcome. I've got a five month old kitten who was neutered a week ago, okay. so I did have the opportunity to catch something. Also had first vaccination, second due in two weeks. Today he's got a cough or hairball. I've had cats before, but never had a hairball. No laboured breathing, playing is normal, cap refill normal, good appetite, breathing and heart rate are normal, slight wheeze on inhalation, audible only when I put my um, ear to his chest. Um, no discharge from eyes or nose, no redness to throats or ears. Colour of mucous membrane is good. If he was a human, <laughs> I'd say upper respiratory, upper respiratory infection like a cold. But yeah. he's not. So should I worry? Can we help uh, with coughing kitten and Carla? Yes, all this is... is, is Stay on how to say safe than sorry. It's better to stay safe. So yes, cats can have lots of respiratory issues, especially when he is about. Remember, he is twenty centimeter from the floor, and you are one point five minimum from from the floor. So there's a lot of dust, a lot of allergens, and also the AC. Most of the cats comes to me. The problem is not the cat itself; is the code that you guys put inside of the your house. So. Um, some, some some of my clients say it's 19, 18 degrees. And beside like that, they leave the cat sleeping outside. And some, this, I, I can see that this is not the case, specifically not the case. But be careful about, first of all, allergen. And second, and remember, some sand, some uh, uh, cat sand, how to call this? Uh, uh, I forgot now. Okay, don't worry. <laughs> like dust? Or? Yeah, you have, you have a lot of dust from the... the so there could be something that's triggering this. I mean, in, she said she's going to ring the vet tomorrow. Is this something the vet could help with? Is, is it a little meds case or a, a let it go? For me, it's always a meds case. Just go and, it, again, there's safe than sorry. So in my opinion, it's much more. It's This is, looks like allergens. So okay. All right. Carla, thank you for your message. The Don't level worry. of detail truly impressed me. Um, Mona says, any advice on getting eye drops into a cat who is squeezing his eyes shut? Of course, depends on the severity of the, the eye problem. If the cat has an ulcer, of course, it's more painful. If the, if the conjunctivitis is more intense, he mm-hmm. squeezes his eyes much stronger than normal. Uh, go to the vet and see if you have any ulcer. Please don't use corticoids in the, in the eyes. Okay, just to, to let you know. And it depends. Some medicine, for example, Tobramicin, that's a medicine that I like to use. We, in Dubai, it's quite widespread use. It's a little more, uh, how can I say, it's uh, making animals feel uh, the drops a little more intense. Okay. It's it's a complicated to give. I like to go for a little light uh, antibiotic. Okay. So it might be the substance as well as your Could technique. Be the, yeah. Okay. Yannick has a lab called Kobe. Now nearly seven months old and we cannot travel with him in the car as he gets so travel sick. We have tried everything. Do you want to hear the list? Having him in the front, not feeding him for a couple of hours before we go out, someone sitting in the back reassuring him, spending time just sat in the car with the engine off, sometimes sitting in the car with an engine on, doing frequent short journeys, nothing is working, he's sick within five minutes, and then walks in it and spreads it everywhere. We have had dogs before, but never one that gets as sick as this in the car. Poor Kobe yeah. and Yannick and your car. <laughs> Could be just an individual situation. Uh, he can use some medical. We we have some medicine that I don't want to prescribe on the on the on the, on the radio, yeah, but, but it's quite simple to go to the doctors and before he goes, it's like for us to go to the to the to any travel and take one tablet like a ten to fifteen minutes before. It's basically the same, and try to don't give too much water, too much food, like one hour before. I see that he say that he he already gave try to use this some technique, but it depends. Most of my 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 dogs that's coming sick to come sick to the clinic. It's caused by, in this case, by the owner itself. They like to give lots of water, even during consultation room, when they say, don't give it, but they insist. And Interesting. So, yeah. Okay, so light. From the stomach and they just. Light, light on, as, you, as you've already tried, Danik, but light on the stomach on the f- before, stomach, yeah. but a preemptive anti-sickness tablet. Yes, I don't want to prescribe, but yes. No, no, of course. Yeah, yeah. What about dogs, um, or indeed cats, that get stressed out? So not sick as such in cars, but 
anxious, you've got problems getting them into the car. Um, you know, we hear a lot about the calming treats. They sound a bit too good to be true, to be honest. Do you think there's anything natural for, you know, calming, especially on stressful car journeys? I have some products I have, I have been using in the clinic, especially some natural stuff, some sprays, especially for cats. The dogs as well, we have some nice smells. It's like as we go for some place we feel comfortable. And aromatherapy, it's very interesting for, for this case. I like it. It's mm. like we talk it. <laughs> we like to see some someone that's, you know, you know, has a good smell, stuff like that. Cats are exactly the same. Don't try to put what, what I have seen special for some rescues. They bring the cat in the same case that they bought another cat before. So... If you have multiple cats or if you work with lots of animals at the same time, wash your cage before putting another animal inside and make sure that this is individual. Don't use the same uh, you know, pillow or a towel or something like that. Try to get to something that is uh, just fresh. Just fresh, yeah. Dr. Sergio, we've run out of time. We haven't run out of questions. We had messages about a chihuahua that only barks at men. We've got a constipated dog. Um, so we will put these questions aside for next week. Um, thank you so much for um, spending the afternoon with us. It's always an absolute pleasure. And you can be found at Intervet, uh, Dr. Sergio de Silva. Thank you so thank much. You. Wishing you a lovely week ahead. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.